This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you'd be so kind to open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we continue with the um, story of the children of Israel moving from Egypt to Canaan. As you recall, this is about a 40-year journey. Uh, Most of their lifespan, as a matter of fact, was spent in the wilderness for many of them. William Clubbertson, the former president of Moody Bible Institute, once said, it's important to start right but it's imperative to end well. Finishing well is much more difficult than beginning well. History is littered with the remains of people who began in triumph and ended in tragedy. The Bible, as a matter of fact, narrates the biographies of many, many individuals, uh, and these characters, are their stories are told for our benefit. Some are written as examples. When you read those in the Bible, the, the, the... The message is, go and do likewise. And of course, some biographies in Scripture are written as warnings. Do not do likewise, because it ended in disaster. As a matter of fact, many of God's greatest saints uh, stumbled near the finish line of life. Noah followed God for 600 years. Most of you are not anywhere near that old. Um, Even though when you wake up in the morning, it feels like 600 years would be young. Anyway, he builds the ark, saves his family, faithfully brought his family through the flood with God's help. When he gets out of the ark, he builds a vineyard, gets drunk. The tent's hot, uncovers himself. His son sees him, his youngest son, and he winds up cursing his own son for dishonoring him because he got drunk in front of his family. David, when you read the life of David, the first 50 years of his life, it's victory after victory after victory after victory. Everything he touched, God blessed. Age 50, way old enough to know better, committed adultery with one another man's wife, one of his commandos, and then arranged to have this guy killed to cover it up. And the last 20 of his life, from age 50 to 70, is a chronicle of catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. Solomon, his son, the wisest man who ever lived, began extraordinarily well. But if he was so wise, why did he marry a thousand wives and concubines? Doesn't sound very wise to me. They turned his heart away from the Lord, and he died at age 60, old, cynical, and alienated. Read Ecclesiastes. That's the testament of an alienated, cynical old man. King Joash of the family of Judah Repaired God's house as a young king, brought about spiritual reforms in Judah. After he was blessed with success, he abandoned God, served idols, wound up murdering the son of the man who saved his life and raised him from childhood. So past faithfulness does not guarantee future faithfulness. The battle to obey must be fought every day, and the battle gets harder as we get older. Amen? Because the flesh gets more selfish as we age. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. In a foot race, when you're running, one stumble can cost you the victory. You've seen that in the Olympics and elsewhere. In today's lessons, we're going to take a look at the life of Moses, this great man of God who stumbled at the finish line in the very last year of his life. The consequence of this stumble, this sin, cost Moses entry into the promised land. One rash decision and a 40-year goal is gone. Let's take a look at the narrative. Numbers 20, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now, Miriam died there and was buried there. Rob is going to show you a a bit of a map here of of the image of the Sinai Peninsula. It's a triangle-shaped image, uh, you know, the shape of the peninsula. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, so to speak, that's where you're going to see um, this um, Kadesh 
Barnea, the wilderness of Zin, that's spelled with a Z, not, a, not an S, the wilderness of Zin. They've been in the wilderness now 40 years. So they're finishing their journey through the wilderness. God had cursed their disobedience and said that they were going to wander 40 years. So they're getting closer to Canaan. And almost all the members of the first generation who disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea 37 years earlier, they are now dead, almost all of them. So this journey from Egypt all the way to Canaan through the peninsula, the very bottom of that triangle, by the way, is Mount Sinai where they met with the Lord. This journey is supposed to take about two years, two years. They spend a year at Mount Sinai at the foot of the triangle. They spend 11, 11 months and five days there getting the law. So God had intended for it to take two years, but it took 40 years due to unbelief and disobedience. So this wilderness of Zins in the northeastern part of the Sinai Peninsula is west of the nation of Edom and southwest of Moab, which are on the other side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River, on the far right of the map. So Kadesh is an area of desert that borders the wilderness of Zin. Kadesh Barnea is a specific site on this map. It's the site of an oasis. And this was supposed to be the launching pad for their invasion of Canaan 37 years before, but they refused to follow God, refused to go in because they said the giants were bigger than God and they wanted to go back to Canaan. So the wilderness of Zen, Rob's going to show you a picture of what this is like. This is not a place you'd want to go camping for the most part. I, it would be dry camping. How's that for those of you that are in motorhomes, right? So this wilderness of Zin is very dry, it's very desolate, it's kind of like our very own Maricopa, right? Just we feel right at home here. I mean, it's really desolate, with the exception of an occasional oasis. It's almost void of vegetation. The highest elevations in this area get somewhere maximum about four inches of rain. The bulk of it's about two inches of rain. So it's even worse than Bakersfield in terms of rainfall, so it's pretty dry. And you can see with two and a half million people in this kind of environment how utterly dependent they were on the Lord. It's not like there's a lot of free food floating around here. If you don't get the manna, you're not going to eat. Real, real simple. So Miriam's death is recorded in verse 1 of chapter 20, and it says it took place in the very first month. Now we know that Numbers 33 tells us that Aaron's death, her brother, occurred in the fifth month of the 40th year, the 40th year since they left Egypt. So this is the last year of their wilderness wanderings. Not much in Scripture is said about the intervening 37, 38 years. Most of the time they wasted it wandering in the wilderness. So the bulk of numbers is really the first two years and then the last year. And now in chapter 20, we have jumped over about 37 years of wandering. There's only a couple chapters on that. And we're in the very last year of their wilderness wanderings. They're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan within the next year. So Aaron's death is recorded next in chapter 20, and that occurred in the fifth month. So Miriam dies in the first month. Her older brother, her younger brother, Aaron, dies in the fifth month. Now Miriam's part of that first generation that came out of Egypt, experienced all the miracles of God that he had performed on behalf of Israel, She's part of the generation that at Kadesh Barnea said, we're not going in. We refuse to follow God. She is Moses and Aaron's older sister. Remember when they were in the land of Egypt and Moses was born, she's the older sister who went to the princess, saw the princess of Pharaoh's daughter and said, would you like me to find a nurse to raise Moses because the Pharaoh was killing all the male children in Egypt, so she was credited for helping save his life as a child. She functions as a prophetess in Israel, which means God spoke truth through her. She was the one who led the worship of the children of Israel when they following the Red Sea miracle. And of course, these are all to her credit. However, she was also the one who, along with brother Aaron, rebelled against God and told God and Moses and the people that you know, Moses shouldn't be the ultimate leader. God has spoken through us as well. I think the three of us should probably rule this nation instead of just Moses. So she's disgraced for leading a revolt against God some decades ago. So as we speak, Moses is 120 years old. Aaron is three years older. He's 123. We don't know how much older Sarah, I mean, uh, how much older Miriam is, but she's probably between seven and, and 10 years older. So she's probably in excess of 130 years of age. 
at this point. So she's had a long, long life. By the way, the Bible only records one woman's age at death in the Bible. Only one, and that's Sarah. Sarah died at 127 years old. That's the only age at death that's recorded in Scripture. Miriam is older than that. So God saw fit to record her death and burial in this first verse as part of his judgment for Israel's unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. Remember when the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, they were supposed to invade the land and they said, we would rather die in the wilderness than go into Canaan. And God says, have it your way, Burger King. You want to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. 40 years. Be careful what you ask for. God might give it to you. Wow. So she was part of that generation that was destined to die in the wilderness because God said only two people of that generation are going to get into Canaan. And the two were the two who walked by faith, which were Joshua and Caleb, right? Her death really demonstrates that nobody gets a special deal from God. Not even Moses' older sister. Nobody gets a special deal no matter what you've done or how much you've served. Even though God forgives, and He did forgive, sin creates consequences that sometimes last the rest of our life. And you say, why would God allow the consequences of sin to follow me through life even though He's forgiven them? Why wouldn't He just take the consequences away? Here's why. The painful consequences of forgiven sin remind us to hate sin. If God took all the consequences of sin away every time He forgave us, you know what we would do? We would sin more. But because God forgives us, sin is forgiven, He still lets us oftentimes live with the consequences of that sin to remind us how awful sin is. And we should hate it and despise it and reject it and run from it, and follow after Jesus with passion. Verse 2. You're going to remember this. This phrase shows up multiple times. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord, why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt and to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Now, this is not the first time they've had a water shortage, right? I mean, they've had water shortages before. God has always provided for them. And you would think at this point in time, they would say there's a water shortage. Maybe we should have a prayer meeting. Right, John? I mean, right? If you need water, have a prayer meeting. John is faithful to remind us to pray for water. Praise God. Water comes from God, right? That's where the Pineapple Express in California comes from, from God. But instead of praying to the one who provides the water, they gang up on Moses and Aaron and start to complain again. And they say, it would be better for us if God had killed us just like he killed our parents' generation. I'd rather be dead than thirsty. That's what they're saying, right? These children, this is the next generation, by the way. All their parents have died, almost all of them. These children are complaining just like their parents did. I wonder where they learned to complain so well from. You and I know that many, many times we tell our children, don't do what I say, do what I do. So then 10 years from now, they're doing what you did and you can't believe they're doing it. Yes, they will follow what we do. They will. So Israel encounters physical hardship and once again, their lack of faith in God is revealed. Listen to what they say. They romanticize the past, they awfulize the present, and they dismalize the future. Egypt was so good. This place is so wretched. 
And we are all so going to die here. I mean, this is, you know, life is terrible, awful, etc. Of course, it's terribly easy for us who live with air conditioning and lighting and heating and full bellies and stuff to judge them. But I am amazed at what a self-centered whiner I can become when I'm tired and hungry. You ever been hangry? Tired and hungry? Yeah. It doesn't bring out the best in us. It definitely does not bring out the best in Brad. Definitely. So I'm not excusing their unbelief because they have experienced God's miraculous provision every single day for the last 40 years, and they still don't believe Him. And if they could see how you and I live, they would say, you live in la-la land. You have no need to exercise faith because you live in the land of milk and honey on steroids. It's good to go back and remember what it's like to be hungry, taut, and hired. They didn't have showers. They didn't have dental work. I mean, it's brutal living in a desert with no water for 40 years. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, assemble a congregation, and speak to the rock, underline that in your Bible, before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let their congregation and their beasts drink. Here's the principle. When we humble ourselves and pray, God gives us His point of view and tells us what to do. When we humble ourselves and pray, God gives us his point of view and tells us what to do. So Moses and Aaron are being heavily criticized and attacked and complained and grumbled at. This is normal. They've been through this for 40 years. And they go from facing their critics to facing God, which is an extraordinarily wise move for us as well. None of us are going to live without human criticism. That's the nature of life because we're surrounded by sinners. Always take human criticism to the Lord. Always take human criticism to the Lord. They fell on their faces before the Lord in an attitude of humility and prayer because they realized how serious this complaint is. The last time that they complained like this, really bad outcomes occurred, right? If this younger generation refuses to believe God like the older generation did, what happened to the older generation? They died in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron understand that God's holiness is not going to be compromised, and if they disbelieve God like the older generation disbelieved God, God's going to discipline them as well. So they're on their faces asking God what to do and also interceding for the nation. What's interesting at this time God does not chastise Israel for complaining. You know, in the past when they bellyached, the glory of God came down in judgment. This time it doesn't come down in judgment. God is very patient. God knows the needs of his people. He shows them great mercy, even though they deserve judgment. Of course, he does us today. We deserve judgment and we've been given grace because the cross of Jesus Christ is grace and mercy personified. This time, God doesn't judge the nation. He tells Moses how to meet their needs. He says, Moses, here's what I want you to do to meet the needs of my people. I'm going to give you three commands. These are pretty simple. Take the rod, assemble the people, speak to the rock. Got it? Repeat after me. Take the rod, assemble the people, speak to the rock. Okay, do you think Moses understood what the commands were? There was no confusion about what God wanted him to do. He couldn't plead ignorance. Then God says, I'll bring water out of the rock for the people and their beasts. Seems simple enough. God told Moses to speak to the rock so that when it begins to flow water, God will receive the glory for the miraculous provision, right? And then the people will trust and follow and obey him. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. 
underline that phrase, just as he had commanded him. That's an extraordinarily important phrase. Shows up a lot in Exodus and Numbers. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And Moses said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Here's the principle. God is honored when we habitually obey him in all the details of life. That is so convicting. God is honored when we habitually obey him in all the details of life. You know, there's a phrase in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. This shows up all the time. And this phrase is, and Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded. Whatever command is, you see that phrase. That's pretty good epitaph. If they could put that on your gravestone with integrity, wow. This complete obedience and this immediate obedience to God is the key to Moses' entire life until now, the very last year of his life. So Moses took the rod just as the Lord commanded. This was the rod through which God had used Moses to perform many miracles, parting the Red Sea, turning the Nile into blood. This was the staff of God that God used through Moses to accomplish these many miracles. So Moses did that. Then Moses and Aaron assembled the people in front of the rock, just as the Lord commanded. So far, so good. Now, however, instead of speaking to the rock, who does Moses talk to? Speaks to the people. God didn't tell him to talk to the people. God said, you speak to the rock. I don't know what Moses was thinking. Speak to a rock. Hmm. The people are about as dumb as rocks, but I mean, I, do I speak to the rock or do I speak? Anyway, for the past 40 years, Israel has been complaining and accusing Moses of trying to kill him in the wilderness. You brought us into the wilderness just to, for us to die. Moses and Aaron have always brought the people's complaints before the Lord, and they did this time as well. And whenever God told them what to do, they did it just as the Lord has commanded, except this time. This time, God told Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses is focused on himself. He's frustrated with the people, and he tells them exactly what he thinks. Have you ever done that? (laughs) Have you ever decided to unload the truck on somebody? I mean verbally. You need to hear this, and I'm going to tell you. And you do. And you exchange the left foot, and then the right foot, and then you've got shoe polish all over your mouth, right, etc. So Moses unloads the boat with him, and Psalm 106, verse 32, tells us that Moses spoke rashly with his lips as a consequence of the people's rebellion because Moses had a lifelong struggle with anger. It was a besetting sin in his life. It's a recurring thing he struggled with. When Moses was in Egypt, he was about 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew. He looked around, looked left, looked right, nobody was watching. He killed the Egyptian taskmaster because he got angry. God told Moses, Pharaoh, by the way, when you go talk to him, is going to refuse to let Israel go. He's going to do that, expect it. One occasion said that Moses left Pharaoh's palace in hot anger. Interesting. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. He's getting the law of God. He's there 40 days, 40 nights. He comes down. God tells him, go down there playing the harlot, which means they're worshiping idols and involved in an orgy with this calf, golden calf idol that Aaron built for them. He comes down the mountain. He looks at it. He is so enraged. He takes the tablets of stone that God gave him, wrote on with the finger of God, and throws them on the rocks and shatters them in pieces. Now, Moses is angry with the people's continually complaining and he verbally lets them have it. Instead of letting God deal with the situation, Moses said, I'm going to deal with it myself. 
What's ironic is Moses yells at the people and calls them what? Rebels. And he himself is rebelling at the very time he's doing it because he's speaking to the people which God didn't tell him to do. Sometimes our righteousness turns into hypocrisy pretty quickly, doesn't it? What happened here? This time, God's not angry with the people. He's not. Moses is misrepresenting God when he becomes angry and calls them rebels. God is not angry with the people. God's not calling them rebels this time. God's going to meet their needs for water. Moses is behaving as if God were angry with them. See, the problem is people looked at Moses and they thought God is like who Moses is. Remember Moses went on the mountain received the commandments of the Lord for 40 days, 40 days. When he came down from the mountain, his face shone with a reflected glory of God. I mean, it was a fulgent light. It was so bright that people didn't want to look at him. They couldn't look at him because the glory of God was reflected in his countenance because he'd spent 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. So when Moses lost his temper here, God's people thought God is an angry God. Because God is like Moses. I mean, who spends time with God? Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights with him, right? It's interesting. When people look at us, they think that Jesus is like you. Because you bear his name. And his spirit lives in us. Yes? Say yes. So how we behave is how people view Jesus. How accurate a picture of Jesus are people seeing when they look at our lives? Of course, most of us would say, well, please catch me on a good day. How about catch me on a good hour? Five minutes, right? That's not when they look. They look when we're under stress and pressure. We all struggle with temptation. Moses happened to be with anger. There are some temptations that each of us have susceptibility to. We're vulnerable to. Moses happens to be anger. We call these besetting sins. They're, they're temptations that come at us over and over and over again because Satan is not stupid. He knows where we're weak and he keeps hammering that same spot. We need to remember 1 Corinthians 10.13. Jesus said, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So God provides the power to overcome temptation, whether it's anger, as in Moses' case, or whatever, whatever it happens to be in your and my life. And he calls that power the way of escape. But we must choose to take God's way of escape. How many times have you been tempted and you hear the still small voice of the Spirit saying, don't say anything. And you go, forget about it. I'm going to let them have it. And you do. That's called disobeying the Spirit, by the way. If the Lord tells you not to speak and you do speak, then we do what Moses did. Because God gives us a way of escape from every temptation through His Spirit. We just need to be obedient when the Spirit leads. So Moses here refuses to follow God. He gives in to his anger and he disobeys. Furthermore, he exalts himself in Aaron when he says to the people, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Sounds like Moses is taking credit for producing the water, right? See, Moses is angry at the people. He's got pride in his own power, and he draws attention to himself and away from God. Those of us who know God and serve God do not manufacture God's blessing. We distribute God's blessing, right? People want the water of life, which is Jesus. We're just the containers, amen? We just distribute the water of life. Moses is taking credit for only what God can do. And when we do that, we make ourselves big and we make God small. We highlight ourselves and push God into the shade when we take credit for what only he can do. 
It's pushing God off his throne and exalting ourselves at his expense. This is called pride. This is what Satan did. And the temptation of that continues in the human family. Next, Moses disobeys God because instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it with the rod twice. Earlier in Exodus 17, this is interesting. This is not the first time they've had water from a rock. Second time. In Exodus 17, they're in Rephidim. They have no water. Israel complains, we're all going to die. There's no water. And God said, take the rod, go to this rock and strike it and water will come out. Moses obeyed just as the Lord commanded, struck the rock, water come out and everybody drank, no problem. This time God says, take the staff, speak to the rock. And you say, what was the difference? Well, the different geographies of this region is going to give you some clues. The rock in Exodus 17 was granite, impenetrable granite. There's no water in granite. So striking a granite rock or granite huge boulder and producing water from it required a supernatural miracle that glorified God because you can't get water out of granite. Here at Kadesh, where they are now, the rock is limestone. Limestone is porous. Limestone transmits water. John A. Beck, seminary professor and an expert on the geography of Israel, explains, and I'm going to quote him, quote, rainwater that gravity forced through the soft upper courses of limestone would dissolve and transport components of that soft chalk down through the upper strata. This mixture of water and chalk would settle through the upper layers of limestone until it reached a less permeable layer. The water would then flow laterally and at times would exit the rock face. As the water flowed from the rock, evaporation would occur, leaving behind crystals that had formerly been dissolved in the water. Given enough time and the right conditions, a mineral cap would form, sealing off the flow. Of course, water would continue to collect behind its former effusion point under increasing pressure. This hidden water resource awaited the blow from a shrewd water seeker who knew how to read the rock. A sharp blow would break the mineral cap and cause water to flow from a rock. End of quote. So let me try and decode that. Water filters down through limestone. Limestone is porous, right? Until it encountered a harder layer and it couldn't penetrate any further then the water on this hard layer would flow laterally downhill. Water, it always flows downhill, and it exits the rock face. And you'd see that water coming out of the rock as seeps or springs, right? Rainwater down through soft rock, hits a hard layer, flows downhill, exits the rock face as a seep or a spring. Sometimes you would have a mineral cap that would come from the dissolved salts, and it, given the right conditions, it would seal off where the water exited. So now you got a reservoir of water backed up on top of this hard rock, and you have this mineral cap on the end of this rock sealing that in. If you knew how to read the rock, you could break that mineral cap, and you would have water flowing out of the rock, right? They still do that today there if you can read the rock. So striking a limestone rock in this region could produce water, and it wouldn't necessarily require a divine miracle. However, speaking to a rock and producing water would require a supernatural miracle, and God would get all the glory from that miracle. But striking a rock, it'd be easy to say, well, Moses could read the rock. He knew the mineral cap was there. He struck the rock. God doesn't get all the glory. So when Moses strikes the rock, he diminishes God's glory because it might be possible to produce water if you could read the rock and know where the mineral cap was located. This is not biblical, but I wonder if Moses was alluding to this knowledge when he said, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? I don't know what Moses knew about mineral caps and limestone and rocks, but it's an interesting question. Regardless, though, Moses dishonored God, and his disobedience brought glory to himself, exalted himself, and not God. Even though Moses disobeyed, God still showed mercy. 
because water flowed from the rock in such quantity that everyone was satisfied, both the needs of the people and the animals. So the disobedience of the leader did not stop God from blessing his people. However, the consequences to the leaders were severe. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. Here's the principle. We believe God when we do what he says. And we treat God as holy when, he, when we give him all the glory for everything he does. We believe God when we do what he says. And we treat God as holy when we give him all the glory for everything he does. God says, you didn't believe me. The issue was not a failure to believe that God could provide water for Israel from a rock. Moses and Aaron's failure was unwillingness to believe that obedience to God's commands was best. When we refuse to believe God, we are calling God a liar. We are saying, my way is better than your way. Moses and Aaron, see, didn't really believe God when God told them to speak to the rock and not to the people. They believed that their way was better than God's way. Unfortunately, Moses and Aaron were acting exactly like the older generation of Israelites, most of which had died in the desert because of unbelief. Israel's leaders had succumbed to the same temptation that the people had succumbed to 40 years earlier. They said, I think my way is better than your way. That's unbelief. Unbelief says, I believe me more than I believe you. And you know how we know what you believe? By how you behave. Behavior always reveals belief systems. See, Moses didn't do less than God told him. He did more than God told him. And God said Moses failed to, quote, treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Now, some of the translations you may have use the word sanctify, which means to set apart, to set apart, to consecrate. God's miracles are always designed to display God's glory. God's miracles are always designed to display whose glory? God's glory, not ours. God was going to demonstrate his power, his glory, through a man who spoke a word to a rock. And water was going to come out. I don't care who you are or where you are, that is supernatural. Moses' disobedience diminished the effect of that and reduced God's holiness in the sight of the sons of Israel when he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And God's judgment of Moses and Aaron was severe. You shall not bring this assembly into this land. Many people view this judgment as excessively harsh because after all, it was just one sin. However, Moses and Aaron, as like all leaders, are held to a stricter standard. The, The principle that greater privilege requires great accountability is found in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. The more knowledge you have, the higher your level of accountability. Moses had seen God face to face. God had spoken to Aaron personally more than once. So they needed to speak and act like God spoke and act, and they didn't do it. They misrepresented them. Despite knowledge, Moses and Aaron disobeyed, Moses disobeyed by disobeying God by not doing what he said, and Aaron disobeyed because he didn't stop him, and he was his brother and he knew better. Now, this principle is really illustrated by Aaron's two older sons. We haven't gone through this. It's happened in Exodus. But back in Exodus 19, Aaron had two older sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they were priests. They served with their dad in the temple. They had heard God speak from Mount Sinai. They'd actually seen a vision of God with a pavement of sapphire under his feet along with the 70 elders back in Exodus 24. They were at the inauguration of the temple when the fire of God came down on the burnt offering, literally, and lit that burnt offering with holy fire. In spite of their knowledge, they chose to disobey God. It says they came into the tabernacle to offer an offering of sweet incense. We talked about that incense last time. 
you would take your little fire pan, you would get a coal of holy fire from the burnt offering, put it on there. This incense was dried herbs, which would burst into flames and have this sweet smell. It was an offering before the Lord of prayers. God said, take the fire from the holy altar. And they said, we are going to take fire from where we want to. The Bible calls it strange fire, not sacred fire. The text indicates very strongly that they may have also been drunk when they were offering this offering because immediately following that, God prohibits all drinking from the priests when they're in the temple. Even worse, it says they offered this before the Lord, which seems to strongly indicate they might have actually entered behind the veil into the most holy place, into the very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was in the mercy seat. Remember, only the high priest was allowed to go into the, holy, the most holy place once a year with blood for the, for the uh, sins of the people. So Nadab and Abihu demanded to come to God on their terms, not his terms, and they disobeyed his explicit commands. They sinned with a raised fist. The Bible calls that a high hand. It's, I know, and I'm going to do it anyway. And God struck them dead on the spot. And God gave Moses the explanation in Leviticus 10.3. This is a good one for us to underline and remember. By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. See, everyone who comes to God as they are, but no one comes to God their own way. I'm going to repeat that. Everyone comes to God as they are. But no one comes to God their own way. God will not allow his holiness to be tarnished by human sinfulness. Remember when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 sees a vision of God in heaven? He immediately cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And immediately an angel brings coals from the fire in heaven and touches his lips and cleanses him because in heaven no sin is allowed. Only because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin are we even able to come near holy God at all. Right? That's the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Yes, praise God. Amen. When we really understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, that's the only time the grace of God through Jesus Christ really is amazing because it's so undeserved. God through Moses, calls this place the waters of Meribah. Meribah in Hebrew means to strive. It means to contend. It means to get in a heated argument with God. You know, God's always going to win that argument. I can't imagine that that would be a good thing, trying to debate with Almighty God. Don't bother. It says God proved himself holy among them. Let me tell you, God will always demonstrate his holiness. God will always receive glory. When we obey God, he is seen as holy through our obedience. When we disobey God, God is seen as holy through his discipline and correction of our obedience, but he will always be seen as holy. The only question is, Will God's glory come through our obedience or through our discipline? Bring glory to Him through our obedience. Don't be bring Him glory through your disobedience so He has to judge you and His righteousness will be seen in your judgment. He will receive glory, but we receive judgment. Obedience is always better. Rob's going to show you the intro to our next section here, the last section of this particular chapter. It's a map of... Mount Hor in the Sinai Peninsula. Mount Hor is in the uh, uh, upper part of this. Uh, we're going to keep it up until I get to the principle so you can see where it is. It's the wanderings of Israel here. Let's keep that map up while we look at this next section. Now, when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor, H-O-R. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom. We're on the west side of Edom now. Quote, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel because you rebelled against my commandment at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eliezer and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer so Aaron will be gathered to his people and he will die there. 
So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Here's the principle. Sin is a choice that limits our opportunities to serve God, sometimes permanently. Sin is a choice that limits our opportunities to serve God, sometimes permanently. Now, Mount Hor, we're not exactly sure where this mountain is, but it seems to have stood on the western edge of Edom, and God revealed to Moses and Aaron that it was time for Aaron to die. Their sister Miriam had just died five months ago, about 130 years old plus. Aaron is 123. He was Israel's first high priest. He had served in that role now for 40 years, and yet he himself was not exempt to God's decree that of that first generation, only Joshua and Caleb would enter the promised land. Aaron was used mightily by God as Moses' leadership teammate and prayer partner. Many, many times you'll see Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the Lord over and over again. However, Moses also, or Aaron also sinned terribly when he was the one who built the golden idol calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai and led Israel into idolatry and challenged Moses' authority along with his sister Miriam. As a matter of fact, God was so angry with Aaron, he wanted to destroy him for that golden idol. Moses interceded for him, and God let him live. I've often wondered what these three were thinking as they climbed to the top of the mountain. I mean, everyone knows, the whole nation, all two and a half million of them, know that Aaron is walking to his death and his burial site. Moses took off all of his high priestly garments, put them on his son Eliezer. Israel was never without a human high priest. God has not revealed how Aaron died, nor who buried him. When you read the text, it seems it could only have been his brother Moses and his son Eliezer. If that's true, they're burying their brother and their dad. What we do know is that Aaron died at this point in time because of his disobedience to God at Meribah. Here's what's staggering. Even at 123 years old, Aaron's death was premature. Had he and Moses obeyed God, they would have led Israel into the promised land. Obedience is far more expensive than we even understand. We live under the blood of the cross, which forgives us from all sins. I firmly believe that when we get to heaven... When Jesus evaluates our life, because he will, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What will cause us the most pain is not the sins we have committed. It's the sins of omission, what we have failed to do, that we could have done had we obeyed. Sin always limits our opportunities to serve God. John Wesley said, God buries his workmen, but God's work goes on. In the last five months, Moses has buried two family members, his sister, his brother. He's experienced yet another revolt from the people. He has been severely disciplined by God for his own disobedience. He will be dead himself within a matter of months. When he comes down from the mountain, do you hear him? Whining, he comes down from the mountain and he goes back to work. The rest of this book and all of Deuteronomy take place in a matter of a few months. And Moses is still doing just as the Lord 
commanded him. He knows that the 40 years in the wilderness are coming to a close and his death is near. He is still running the race of faith all the way to the finish line. That's a model for us to go and do likewise. Amen? So let's summarize. When we humble ourselves and pray, God gives us His point of view and tells us what to do. We get into trouble when we do something before we ask God what He wants us to do. Paul says, pray without ceasing. I don't think we understand how much we need his input until we try and live without it. Number two, God is honored when we habitually obey him in all the details of life. The habitually is make it a habit to obey, and all the details mean don't have any area of life that you excuse disobedience in. There is no such thing as a small sin. Rebellion is rebellion. Number three, we believe what God, we believe God when we do what he says. Our belief is measured by obedience. And we treat God as holy when we give him all the glory for everything he does. You know, when you're walking with Jesus, you will be different. And people will be attracted to the Savior. And they will say things to you like, wow, you were really patient there. Wow, you really loved them. I'd have slapped them silly. At that point in time, you can either accept that praise yourself or you can say, the only reason I behave that way is because of what Jesus Christ does in my life. You now have opportunity to give him the credit for what he does and what only he does because before Jesus, we were all selfish little pigs. Correct? We still struggle with that. So when people praise you because they see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, point them to Jesus. Say, this is not me. This is Jesus in me and through me. You need to meet the Savior because he can change your life like he changed my life. That's giving him the glory and not taking credit for what only God can do. Lastly, sin is a choice that limits our opportunity to serve God, sometimes permanently. This is a very sober reminder of the power of holy living and why it's really, really imperative to keep short accounts with God. If there's sin in your life, that's what confession's for. That's what repentance is for. Don't harbor it any more than you're going to live with cancer. Right? Okay. This has been an enormously meaty lesson, and we have more yet to come in this book. This book is life. This is nutrition. This is superfood. Read it, study it, ask God to teach you. I love you all. You are such good students, and I know the Lord is going to do mighty things through you this week. Now that you know, do. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.